0: Oh, well, good morning, St. Barnabas. Good morning. Am I on? does it matter. I'm on. Good. Excellent. Uh, let's take a moment and let's pray. Lord, may the treasures of your word uh, sparkle brilliantly before us today, um, despite the preacher and despite the day. Um, we may have come in many different uh, mindsets today and with many different issues on our hearts, many different distractions. But I pray your word would be heard clearly, and I pray it would work its way into our hearts, and by your Holy Spirit, um, transform us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you, how, uh, how readily are you able to talk about yourself? I've noticed uh, in my lifetime quite an interesting cultural shift in Australians' readiness to, disc- to talk about their own lives, about their experiences, their internal feelings, their hopes. My grandparents' generation was the World War II generation and they almost never talked about their experience. My father can't remember either of his uncles who came back from serving overseas ever talked about what they experienced during the war. Um, and, and for that generation, to a, very, to a certain extent, it was considered very poor form to talk about yourself, no matter how significant the events or feelings uh, you may have experienced. My parents' generation, who are the, the Vietnam War generation, are fairly similar, very, very slow to open up about their feelings and their, and their hopes uh, and their fears. But now, our kids' generation are almost the complete opposite. The Facebook generation, they can't stop talking about themselves all the time. What they've done, what they think, how they feel, what they're hoping, what they're they're planning. And and you find sometimes even the most trivial experience, you know, last night's cocktail. Uh, Somehow an an event of great newsworthiness complete with a, a video clip of it being consumed. So you can join in. Well, our second week of reading Paul's letter to the Colossians brings us to a passage uh, where Paul is talking about himself. Now, Paul often talks about himself in his letters, but only ever when it serves the subject at hand, and therefore only ever to serve the people that he's speaking to. And in, in this situation, in this, in this case, his credibility is at stake. He's going to need to gain his listeners' trust if they are to hear the message that he has to bring to them. Well, from last week, you might recall that Paul began his letter with a thanksgiving. And in that thanksgiving, he expressed his delight at the news of how the Colossians show real evidence of faith in Christ and love for God's people. Faith and love, you recall, that spring up from hope. Hope, which is itself uh, the product of the good news about Jesus Christ that they've heard. And he went on to give us one of the grandest statements of the excellence and the supremacy of Christ that we have anywhere. Paul was also concerned uh, for the Colossians and, and concluded his opening by urging them to continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out to you in the gospel. And from this it becomes apparent that something not quite right has begun to creep into their understanding of Christian faith. Or more specifically, someone, whether someone from inside the congregation or someone from outside the congregation, is teaching them a lie. Because he'll conclude today by saying, "'I tell you all this, so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments.'" Now, like all lies, this teaching obviously has enough truth about it to sound plausible, but it's wrong. It's off-centre, it's misdirected, it's deceptive, and therefore it's destructive to a life of genuine Christian faith and love. Paul will go on and call it a hollow and deceptive philosophy, which we'll examine in more detail next week. But first, what he wants to do is to make a very clear representation about himself. If the Colossians are going to hear him criticise their church and their practice, then they're going to need to have reasons to trust him above the false teachers. And they're going to need need to have reasons to trust the gospel that he's bearing to them. Now remember, they know and they trust Epaphras. He's one of them. But Paul is known to the Colossians only at second hand and only by his reputation. So, think of this section we're looking at today as Paul's Facebook page. And if it was his Facebook page, there'd be three important things he'd be posting up there that he wants to tell us about himself. He presents himself, first of all, as a worker. Secondly, he, he's a worker who's on a mission. He has a goal. He has an outcome in mind. And thirdly, at the centre of this mission, at the centre of his work, is a message. Paul the worker, with a mission, with a message. Let's use our time to look at each of those three. No ice cream today for three points. Paul the worker. Now, Paul is one of, if not the leading figure of the early church outside of Jerusalem. He's one of a select, never-to-be-repeated group of apostles. And, and at times, as he writes to other churches, the Galatian church, the, the Corinthians, the Thessalonians, he will make a great deal about his authority as an apostle, and again, only ever to serve a point, never to serve himself. But in this letter to the Colossians, he passes very quickly over his title as an apostle, in his introduction, and instead the word he's going to use with them to describe himself is the word servant. Now this word servant, in in Greek it's the word diakonos, if you like Greek. Um, It has a very different connotation to the other Greek word that is often translated into the New Testament as servant, and that's the word slave, and in Greek that's the word doulos a term that Paul also will use at times to describe his position. To call yourself a slave, doulos, was to emphasise the fact that you belonged to somebody else as their property. And so you had no choice in your work for them. Simply a fact, you had to do it. And, And Paul will often, in fact, refer to himself as a slave, a doulos of Jesus Christ, to indicate how thoroughly he belongs to Jesus. But to call yourself a servant, diakonos, on the other hand, really brings into the picture the whole notion of willingness. A servant works because they care about the work and because they care about the one they're serving, the one they're working for. Now, in English, the traditional translation of diakonos into English is the word minister. And what a government minister and what a church minister both have in common is their readiness to serve for the good of other people. But sadly, now, the common conception of a Christian minister is really the complete opposite of this. The media is very quick to latch on to examples of ministers who are exploitative who are abusive, who are self-interested. Almost to the point that now in the popular imagination, Christian minister is synonymous with hypocrite. Someone who says something on the one hand, but lives something very differently on the other. And if you want a very good example of how the world sees this at the minute, uh, watch an episode of The Handmaid's Tale. Paul makes it very clear then that to be a servant is in fact to suffer. When he says, right at the start, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church, he's not actually talking as though he himself is sharing in Christ's sufferings on the cross, as though the cross of Christ is somehow uh, incomplete without Paul's participation. He's using a very different concept of suffering, Christ's suffering on the cross is never referred to with this word affliction. And again, if you're a a Greekophile, it's the word thlipsis. Thlipsis, not to be said after a couple of beers. Christ's thlipsis is generally the persecution, the rejection he experiences at the hands of his own kinsmen and, of course, at the hands of the Romans. It's the kind of suffering and persecution, the kind of affliction that he makes very clear his disciples can expect to encounter as his followers. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, he tells them in John's Gospel. And Paul himself will tell in numerous places of the beatings, the stonings, the shipwreck, the hunger, the imprisonment, the fear, the trouble that he experiences as an apostle in order to serve Christ and in order to serve the church. And they're a mark of how seriously he takes both of those. So for Paul, to serve is to suffer. It's not to get famous, it's not to get fat, and it's not to get rich on the gospel. For Paul, to serve is also to work hard. In uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you, and for those at Laodicea. And back in verse 29, he says, I labour, wrestling with all the energy Christ gives me. For Paul, this is no easy life following Jesus. So to follow Jesus, to be a servant, is to become like him. Now before Paul can commend his gospel message as the superior, the only message that the Colossians should stick to, he's commending himself as a true follower of Jesus, a servant who suffers and works hard because the master is worth it. And so are the people that he's working for. It's a very winsome picture and a very appealing picture of a Christian leader. And that's because our Saviour himself is very winsome. Coming not to be served, but to serve. The shepherd who tends his sheep. The shepherd who lays down his life for them. That was the mission that Jesus took up. And so it follows that we too are to be a winsome people in the way that we serve. Our ministry, our service, should be no less than this. It should be a ministry free of deceit, free of gimmicks and trickery, unlike the false teachers who've come into the picture in Colossae, who Paul says are deceitful. Our ministry should not be coercive. There's there's no place for force or power, no place to impress or manipulate or stand over people and manhandle them into the kingdom. And nor should we ever think that Christian work ought to come from a position of strength or magnificence. I mean, after all, Jesus' position of glory, the supreme moment of his glory, is the cross. And so any kind of service that attempts to look showy and magnificent or even just look fashionable is somehow straying off the mark of what it means to be a Christian servant. So then, what is Paul the servant aiming at? What's his mission? Well, he wants to persuade his listeners of the superiority of his gospel, but to what end? Now again, a servant never works for themselves, they work for others, and so Paul's concern is for his listeners. We proclaim him, he says in verse 29, so that we may present everyone fully mature. In Christ, to which end I labor. He goes on to say, I, I desire you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who've not met me personally. Why? Well, he's got three statements. So that there, your hearts, may be joined together in love. So that they, you, may have all the riches of complete understanding. So that they, you, may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. The task of the Christian is to grow up, to become a mature human being. And so the task of Christian ministers, of Christian servants, is to grow others up. To the Ephesian church, Paul expressed service in this way, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. You might recall that in chapter 1, Paul presented Christ as the man, the truly human man, the only man who fulfills our human vocation as God's image bearers, representatives of the king, who share in his work and his rule over creation. And it follows then that only in Christ do we become fully and truly human. To become mature as a Christian is to become like Christ. That is the goal, the objective of Christian growth. And so the goal of all Christian mission and all Christian ministry is no more and no less than that. Um, In in coming to St Barnabas, Janala and I have encountered some old faces uh, that we know. They weren't old when we first met them. Uh, We were all young people once in a very large network of uh, youth across the city of Perth. But it's been refreshing to me to suddenly meet again Cullingfords and, and tailors and, and bowls and werns and to have contact with leeches, not the blood-sucking kind, but the Toby and the Esther kind. Um, th- these are all folk that Janala and I have variously known from our early days of our early Christian journey. But one of the things that saddens me most, one of the things that has driven me on um, in ministry, more than anything, are the faces we no longer see as we get about. The many folk from our youth who made confessions of faith, who who even worked in ministry and mission, who are no longer followers of Jesus, who've not grown up and matured in, in Christ, but actually withered away. And I know from talking to some of them that they feel like they have matured beyond Christianity, but I'm not sure they have. Even by their own standards, I'm not sure that they have grown up to become any wiser, any happier, or any better in themselves. And I have to say that after 37 years, I'm still sure the gospel offers a far-surpassing vision of life in Christ than anything I've encountered outside of him. And so Paul brings us to the heart of the matter. The very thing that Paul is posting about himself. The most important thing Paul would have on his Facebook page. And that is his message. The excellence of Christ is what drives Paul. He's not concerned about bums on seat. He's not concerned about getting pats on the back. To Paul, the good news is a treasure beyond price. He says as much. In verse 3, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He talks about the word of God, the presentation of Jesus, in all its fullness. He talks about the glorious riches of this mystery in verse 27 and goes on to talk about the full riches of complete understanding. Paul understands himself as a man with his hands full of treasure, In comparison to what the false teachers have been putting forward to the Colossians, which he says are a little more than fine-sounding arguments. A hollow and deceptive philosophy. Something that doesn't hold up. Not worth hearing. And to the Colossians, Paul represents this treasure as the mystery of Christ. Now what does he mean? Now, in our vocabulary, if you look this up in our dictionary, mystery means something like this, something that is difficult or even impossible to understand or explain. And so one of the best examples of this is the disappearance of Malaysian airline flights 370. That remains a mystery. In other words, something we are unlikely to ever solve, something we cannot presently explain. But in Greek, the way that Paul uses this term mystery, and and this is a word we get from Greek, the Greek word is mysterion, this is a term that Paul uses to describe the gospel as good news that once was hidden from human view, but now has been made known fully in Christ Jesus by God. So as mystery, Christ is a phenomenon the Old Testament scriptures could only hint at, could only dimly foresee God's history of creation and salvation, his history of his dealings with the world and with his people, Israel in particular, were a prelude to Christ, a a preparation of the world so that it could make sense of God's coming in flesh. What was only partly seen or understood about God's revelation of himself in the Hebrew Scriptures, is now fully disclosed to us in Christ. As mystery, then, Christ and the cross is something that no human being would ever have thought up. He just doesn't fit the pattern of human storytelling or human myth-making. And he isn't the solution that we would have looked for to the answers of, and dilemmas of human existence. To the, to the Corinthian church, Paul wrote, We speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, these things God has prepared. For those who love him. And as mystery then, Christ is all grace. You understand, we don't discover him. We we don't reach him through our own reason, through calculation or through knowledge. We know him only by revelation. Only as God makes the Son known to us can we know know him. And that action itself is pure grace. It's all gift. And like all gifts, has nothing to do with our efforts or our cleverness or our goodness. It's got everything to do with God's character as the God who means well for us, the God who's not holding back on us, the God who intended from the very beginning to bless humanity. And so then, as mystery, Christ is personal. This, this revealed mystery—it's not esoteric, it, it's not theoretical, and it's not hard to understand. You don't need a PhD to get your head around it. You don't need a great intellect, because in biblical terms, to know is chiefly to know to, is chiefly to be in relationship with to know relationally. And so, the full expression of this mystery, Paul says, is Christ. In you the hope of glory. And there it is again, our word hope from last week. The hope of glory, that that thing that we are looking forward to, that complete mature state as resurrected persons who are fully in his presence. When he says that Christ is in you, the hope of glory, he's not talking about any kind of glory that we might have of ourselves. That this glory is a way of referring to God's person. The hope of glory means the hope that we will be fully in his presence. No veil between him and us. Nothing undisclosed or unknown about him. And as we saw in chapter 1, this good news is not simply a message for the future, something for after we die and go to heaven. It's a reality now. Christ in you is the present reality of your existence. It is the indwelling of the Son of God by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The life-giving presence of the God the Father in the presence of the Holy Spirit who brooded over creation. And again, it is all gift. Paul elsewhere will talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit as a deposit, a down payment guaranteeing our inheritance, a down payment on the fullness of life we are yet to receive. To know him is to be indwelt by him. Christian experience is nothing less than that. This isn't a metaphor for some intellectual exercise or some emotional experience. This is the central fact of what it means to be a Christian. It is, in fact, the definition of what a Christian is. Paul wants us to know then that we hold a very great treasure in our hands. Well, as we've listened this morning to Paul talking about himself, we recognize he's been preparing his listeners to explore the gospel more deeply and to be challenged by that gospel. And he's given them reason to trust him over and above the false teachers who will explore next week. I want to come back around and say, perhaps we too should be more ready to talk about ourselves. Not to polish up our own reputations, of course, but like Paul, to serve one another. To become ministers to one another, to become ministers to the various communities we live and work in around us. Sharing this great treasure that we have in our hands, so that we may grow one another into maturity, into the likeness of Christ, the true man, the full image of the Father. And I might add that that also means then we need to be a people more open to talk about what is within us, the struggles and the hopes and the fears. A people ready to let one another in? Because after all, If Christ is within us, we must be prepared to let him in, surely. Go in peace then to know the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Amen.